outdated workforce skills, supply chain management insights, and a coaching program on pre-implementation planning. Those are just a few of the topics we're going to cover today on episode number 143 of Transformation Ground Control. This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberly. Hello, welcome to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 143. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm the CEO of Third Stage Consulting. We're an independent consulting firm that helps clients throughout the world reach their third stage of digital transformation success. And joining me, as always, is my co-host from Third Stage Consulting as well, uh, Kyla Cheatham. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here for today's episode. Glad to have you here. Excited for today's episode as well. And uh, we've got a, a great show for you today. And by the way, if you don't know, this is the podcast that covers everything related to digital transformation. It's the tech agnostic podcast that covers all things related to people, process, technology, and strategy aspects of transformation. So thank you for being here today. New episodes every Wednesday that you can find at transformationgroundcontrol.com in all the different platforms that you might want to listen or watch. Just go to transformationgroundcontrol.com to see some of the past episodes and new episodes every Wednesday as well. Got a great show for you planned today. I'm excited. We're going to start off our opening segment as we always do with audience questions. We're going to get to those answers here in the opening segment. And also in the opening segment, we've got a couple of hot topics um, we're going to cover today. One is related to outdated workforce skills and what's happening with the workforce skills of today. And uh, just as a spoiler alert, some of those skills are becoming obsolete. So we'll, we'll get into that here in a moment. We're also going to talk about uh, the outcomes of supply chain management automation and how supply chain management automation is enabling some, some critical uh, business outcomes. So we'll talk about that as well. And then later in the show, we'll have our first guest joining us, uh, Laura Sassiri uh, Laura from Supply Chain Insights. She's an industry analyst that's also worked for Gartner and AMR Research. And she's going to be on talking about the intersection of enterprise technology and supply chain management. So it's a pretty broad topic, but we're going to dive into supply chain management now and in the future and where supply chain management is headed. And she's a first time guest on the show, so I'm very excited to have her on as well. And then later in the show, last but not least, we are going to play for you a preview or we'll preview for you a coaching program that we are rolling out here at Third Stage Consulting that covers pre-implementation planning. So if you're in the early stages of thinking about or beginning a digital transformation, um, we're going to preview some of that coaching and provide some of that coaching to you um, here in the last segment. And we'll give you some access to uh, resources that'll take you through the rest of the coaching program beyond what we cover here today. So be sure to stick around for that. And that, again, is focused on pre-implementation planning, sort of the overall digital strategy and making sure you've got a solid roadmap for how to move forward with your transformation, regardless of where you are in the journey right now. So all that being said, um, let's start with some of the questions from the audience that you've got for us, Kyler. And you warned me before we went live that you've got some quote unquote good ones for us today. So I, I don't know what you mean by that. Yeah. I have a feeling they're not really good ones, but maybe <laughs> difficult ones, but I don't know. You tell me. 
I, I wouldn't say that. I, I think we our our audience was very engaged this week, which is excellent um, across Omni platforms. So really, you know, our ability to have questions from the audience on LinkedIn, on TikTok, on YouTube, on all the different platforms in which Eric puts out content and then we put out content through Thursday's consulting group. Uh, we have the opportunity to actually ask him those questions on here. So if you do have questions for future episodes, you can go ahead and pop those in the comments anywhere that you're consuming this content um, or seeing this episode. You can tag me directly or we will go in and find them and let, let you know that we're answering them on next week's ground control episode. So with that, let's jump into one from LinkedIn here. Um, and so this one talks about how you at third stage, the methodology, the team facilitates business process management. And those two different approaches, one is a clean slate approach. So beginning with those as is processes, um, but increase employee buy-in, it can take a little longer though, right? And then the other one is the best practice approach, which begins with start at, at a starting point, and then it can be quicker, but typically it doesn't create as much buy-in from the employees if you do kind of that best practice approach. So with that, this question is no one size fits all. So your, your audience knows you. They know you're going to say it depends. Um, but in percentage or an estimate, how many of your clients choose one or the other? And what has been the most successful in prepping for technology implementations? Great question. Um, I don't know that I have a, a a good percentage overall. I could maybe tell you some different functions or different parts of businesses that are more likely to fall one direction or the other. Um, when I when I if you start off with sort of your your basic back office functions like finance or in accounting, for example, um, maybe procurement, inventory management, um, your basic pick pack ship processes within a warehouse. Um, maybe some basic manufacturing processes if you're if you're producing you know widgets that are not highly customized. All those processes I just mentioned are examples of ones that are more likely to be centered around best practices. Uh, you know, coming from whatever the software can do, you're generally going to uh, adapt maybe a little easier to whatever the software can do out of the box without necessarily having to customize or you know find bolt-ons or whatever. Um, and that assumes that you find the right technology, of course, that you find a technology that you can configure to meet your needs and, and you've done a thorough and comprehensive analysis and you find the technology that best fits your organization. In those cases with those functions, you're probably leaning towards like an 80-20 split of, of, um, of best practice off the shelf functionality that you're going to adapt to. When you start getting into some of the other stuff, like the, the less common or the less consistent back office functions, um, and then you start to move beyond back office functions to look at more customer facing and product facing processes. So things like e-commerce, things like uh, advanced manufacturing, advanced planning, um, advanced supply chain management, if you've got a global supply chain, um, if you have a custom product that you manufacture that has a lot of implications with how you take orders and how you um, how you plan for manufacturing, all that stuff. So if you if you look outside sort of the basic vanilla sorts of processes, then you start to look at around the edges of the organization, which the edges of the organization are probably areas that are more likely to be areas of competitive advantage for you. 
then in those areas, I'd probably flip it and say it's more likely to be an 80-20 split the other way, which is 80% sort of not necessarily as is processes, but you're leading with business processes rather than leading with technology. So here's where you say, this is what we want our processes to be, either because we have really good processes to begin with, we just need better technology to support it, or our processes are broken, but we know what we want them to do to be able to provide that competitive advantage. Now let's go find the technology to do it. So in those cases, I'd say it's about, you know, probably 80%-ish that are more focused on letting the process drive the technology. Whereas when you're looking at back office functions like finance and accounting, you're more likely to have 80% off-the-shelf processes. Absolutely. And and that's a, a good kind of balance between the two different approaches. But like as you as you mentioned in the question, it is a one size fits all and and that visibility and awareness around that is going to be really critical to the the one you choose, it sounds like. Yeah, absolutely. Excellent. Um, and so this this question is from um, YouTube, and it talks about the role of project managers in digital transformation or technology projects in general. And this question is, the way I see it, a majority of corporate organizations, large corporate organizations, are using PMs as secretary assistants with absolutely no leadership power. How can you really create change through your project if you have no deciding authority? That's a great question. I would say don't be a glorified secretary. That's, I mean, or don't put a glorified secretary in that role. I know that's probably uh, easier said than done in this person's um, world. But what I would say is it starts with leadership and leadership in the organization has to define what that project manager role is. And, you know, I talk in that video a lot about how there's an art and a science to project management. And it's easy, relatively easy to find someone who understands the science of project management, someone that's really good at sort of your basic blocking and tackling and task management and resource management stuff that's really important to project management, but it doesn't paint a complete picture of what an effective project manager needs to do. And so the leaders in the organization have to define that project manager role and put someone in that project manager role that fits the bill. And it includes the science of project management that I just mentioned, as well as um, some of the art of project management, which is you know understanding the business and making sure that the things you're actually managing to are actually supporting the overall goals and objectives of the organization making sure that you can manage and navigate change management issues and that sort of thing. And not that you have to be a jack of all trades necessarily, but you kind of do have to be a jack of all trades. You have to understand the broad landscape of what digital transformation and ERP implementations are and be able to apply both the art and the science to it. So it starts with leadership defining the role and putting someone in the role that fits that, that view or vision of what project management is. Yeah. And you know, you have that opportunity to kind of coach up and define the role and set expectations before you actually enter it. So looking at that and really what a PM does, highly recommend Eric's PM content on his YouTube channel because that really takes you through a project manager role can be very gray and it can depend on the project. It can depend on the organization, can depend on the leadership, as you mentioned, but going into define, you know, how you feel as the project can be successful, helping to create expectations around that role, I think will save some of that admin work um, as well. So great answer. Yeah. So last question I want to round out with today is actually from Ahmed and it's on LinkedIn and it uh, is on one of your videos that talks about how ERP software is really one of the most important things you can add to your visit 
to your business, excuse me. And it's from actually your TikTok channel. So this is kind of a correlation between the two. It's a short one. And this one's actually about one of your friends and colleagues, Walker Reynolds. So the question is, I've seen Walker Reynolds say that investing in an ERP system is a waste of money and that executives who do should be fired. <laughs> now, for the two most influential digital transformation influencers, why do you differ on this opinion? I don't know that we do necessarily differ. Um, you know, I, I think that, first of all, I haven't seen whatever document or, or piece of thought leadership or pieces of thought leadership that, that Walker has put out that has said that ERP is a waste of money and you should be fired if you do it. I haven't seen him or heard him say that, but it wouldn't surprise me if he did. <laughs> it sounds like something he might say. Um, but what I would say is I, I sort of agree with them. I mean, I think there's, I, and I might add a caveat and say that ERP implementations as we know it and, and traditional typical ERP implementations, executives just shouldn't be doing it. If they're going down the same rabbit holes that most organizations have been going down for the last 20, 30 years plus, just stop, stop doing it. Like you're wasting, you are wasting a lot of money. You're subjecting the organization to a ton of risk and you're probably not getting the business value you should get out of an ERP implementation. And I do think a lot of organizations just get that shiny object mentality of it's, we need new technology or what's even worse is a lot of the software vendors are kind of forcing their hands and saying, you have to upgrade now because we're taking away support for your legacy ERP system. So a lot of executives in their defense are sort of caught between a rock and a hard place. They, they've got this outdated technology, their vendor is not going to support it for much longer and they have to do something or they feel like they have to do something. Um, so that's, you know, sort of in the defense of the organizations, but I, I do agree with Walker is that you've got to be, we've got to be a lot smarter and organizations have to be a lot smarter about how they approach digital transformations and ERP implementations. I don't think ERP software is a waste of money, but I think organizations waste an enormous amount of money on the implementations and on the software that they don't need. So I think it's a matter of being more strategic, more selective, more deliberate, and just smarter about how you invest money. And yes, don't waste as much money as you've been wasting for the last you know, that we as an industry have been wasting in this ERP space for the last 20 or 30 years, we do need to stop doing that. But I think there's ways to be successful where you can be more targeted, deliberate, and, and effective and efficient all at the same time. Most definitely. And we'll um, tag Walker as we have this conversation. Hopefully he can um, jump in the comments, but turning to the audience who, you know, there's a lot of crossover between you and Walker, um, be interested to hear your thoughts on should, you know, an ERP executive or an executive that champions ERP be fired? We always like, you know, the the dialogue here in, in the audience, but great questions. Well done audience. Again, if you want to ask questions to Eric, go ahead and pop it on any of his social media channels or third stage consulting group. You can find us on all platforms um, and we will answer those questions live here. He does not seen those questions before, so it is a true um, answer and question or question and answer session. So thank you so much for that. And I'm, I'm excited to get some of these hot topics. Talk about polarizing. We've got some good subjects too. Yeah, absolutely. And, and how the tables are about to turn. You've, you've just asked me some tough questions. I'm going to ask you some tough questions after, after break here. Um, but, uh, let's take that break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about a couple of these hot topics that you mentioned, Kyler, we're going to talk about business outcomes within supply chain management automation, which is a nice tie into our guests later in the show. Um, who's going to be on talking about supply chain management. We're also going to talk about outdated workforce skills here in just a moment. And then later in the show, we'll have Laura Sassiri on the show, who's going to be talking about supply chain management 
and the intersection of enterprise technology with supply chain management as well. And then last but not least, later in the show, Kyler, uh, we're going to be playing a uh, a preview of a coaching program that you put together around uh, pre-implementation planning and sort of that overall strategy and roadmap for your transformation. Even if you're not in the thick of an implementation yet, it's actually even better if you're not, because this is the the sort of planning and the roadmap to get you started uh, down that path that we'll, we'll play you later today. So uh, stick around, uh, stay tuned. We'll be right back with uh, some of the hot topics and the guests that I just mentioned. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 143. My name is Eric Kimberling, here with Kyla Cheatham. You can find new episodes of this show every week at transformationgroundcontrol.com. Whatever platform you prefer to listen or watch, check it out at transformationgroundcontrol.com. So excited for these hot topics you've got in store for us, Kyler. What uh, what are these two topics that you want to cover here today? Absolutely. Well, this, this one's kind of setting us up for actually our next episode, which is our holiday Halloween episode um, around scary stories that we do every year. Um, so this one actually did scare me. This headline got me. Usually I'm pretty good at, you know, keeping an even keel for clickbait, but this one kind of, you know, shook me a little bit. So it talks about how half of all skills will be outdated within two years within the workforce. So let's break this down a little bit because that's a, a pretty bold headline. So this is actually a survey from an online platform called EDX, which is an education platform. And what they did is they surveyed 800 executives and 800 employees. And what their results were is that the executives um, estimate that nearly 49%, half, right, of all skills that exist in their workforce today will not be relevant in 2025. And the same number, 47%, believe their workforces are unprepared for the future workplace. Um, so that number was a little staggering to me. Um, I felt as though, you know, obsolete by 2025, that's not too far away. You know, we're almost to 2024. Um, and looking at that, is that a way that's healthy to kind of look at your workforce when it comes to future state planning? Maybe it is. Maybe it's a you know a way in which we we really need to go into overdrive on upskilling workers and understanding the integration of things like generative AI in our enterprise technology stack. But that's a, a pretty big number, just at least in my opinion. So I wanted to bring it to you to see what your thoughts were on that data. 
Yeah, I think it's um, what you said, which is it's, it's an opportunity to upskill and knowing that there's a trend in that direction and that our workforce is likely to need to be upskilled is something that we can start working on now and not wait, you know, for two years for the for those trends to materialize. Whether or not it's actually, you know, 50% or not, I don't know. Even if it's just a fraction of that, though, even if it's 10% or whatever the number is, that's still a big number. And in order to be competitive, you're going to have to figure out a way to upskill. And that's, you know, two years isn't a lot of time, too. You look at, well, what's it going to look like in five or 10 or 20 years? And, you know, for a lot of organizations, especially bigger organizations, it's just going to take time to build that competency uh, to get the wheels moving in that direction. So, um, you know, that's something that's, pretty low risk if you overshoot and you overinvest in upskilling, what's the worst that can happen there? I mean, that's, that's a lot less consequential in a negative way than if you don't do it. So uh, I think it's, it's all point in that direction that we need to focus on upskilling our, our workforce. And in thinking about upskilling, that's kind of one category. And the next is really the, the future of work. And you talk a lot about the lag kind of in the higher education system um, or in the education system in general and entering the workforce than keeping up with the technology that you actually have to utilize within your job and the gap there, the skills gap. So I'm interested to hear your reaction to this data point, which is in this survey, 80% of executives predict that entry-level knowledge workers will need AI as a main skill for them coming into a technical job role. So knowing that, that that's kind of the perception one, would you agree with that? And two, how do we make sure our our young people, our entry-level workers are trained in those types of emerging technologies? Yeah, I mean, I think um, there's something to be said for the importance of, of AI. And, and I know there's a lot of thought leaders out there and, and people that have opined on the importance of AI and how important it's going to be in, in the workforce in the future. So I think it is something that, that you've got to you know brace yourselves for. And I think that um, there's a lot of us, myself included, where I, I know I could be using AI more than I am to be more effective and efficient and where I do use it, which is probably, you know, less than 5% of my time in my job is is engaging with AI in some ways. But when I do and where I do, I find it to be highly effective. And it's actually not just an efficiency thing. It's also just, I feel like I'm smarter. You know, I can get access to more information and more ideas. Um, I use it a lot for idea generation and stuff like that. And just to really, it's almost like you're bouncing ideas off a super smart person that can give you, you know, take your idea and make it better or give you alternatives to it or whatever. Um, so I can see why it, it someone might, or, or why analysts might think it's going to be such an important thing. Um, but I think, you know, rather than hide from it or be afraid of it, which I imagine some educational institutions are, um, that I think they sh would behoove themselves to embrace it. It's a lot like, you know, computers and calculators and things in the past that, educators might not have been super excited about it first, but then once they did embrace it, you know, they, they were able to coexist. Absolutely. Certainly a hybrid approach of understanding the powers and competencies of AI um, and what a time to be alive, as I always say, um, in, in learning these new roles and, and really kind of crafting your own path around that because a lot of it is self-taught. Um, as well. And, you know, it takes a, a motivated employee to really invest in in making sure that they're continuing to keep on top of new competitive advantages in the workforce. So definitely a, a digital resume, if you will, there. Right. So let's move on to another analyst piece. And I kind of pulled this one to set the conversation for your, your uh, next conversation with Laura, because I think it's very interesting in knowing 
her analysts feedback around this. Um, but this one's actually from Gartner and they, um, they released Gardner released a recent uh, analyst report on enabling critical business outcomes through digital supply chain transformation. And some of the pieces that I wanted to share with you um, and get your reactions to kind of showcase the overall priority of the supply chain moving forward as a main position. Um, so they actually talked about a new role that they've been seeing, which is chief supply chain officers. So like we need more acronyms, but we have them right. here we are. So it's CSCOs. Um, and, and this new position, because of the importance of understanding the supply chain in general. And the, the biggest finding here with this position is they often struggle to translate their digital supply chain vision and ambitions, overall objectives, into understandable and easily communicated business-aligned digital transformation roadmaps. So this often happens in projects we see, whether it's a CSCO, right, a CIO, or an executive that comes in with a very pioneering digital roadmap, but they have a hard time attaching it to the current state of the business or understanding how they're going to create this, this huge transformation within the business and how they consume or communicate in a digital environment. So I'm wondering kind of what advice or what your reaction would be to this new executive role, CSCO, and looking at the ability to digitize supply chain, but understanding that there might be many manual tasks and that could be a, a very complicated and complex project. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot a lot there to unpack in that in that question. I mean, there's, there's certainly... Um, you know, with the technology side, I mean, you, you, you want to make sure that you, it's fully integrated and that it's a, it's got the visibility within the organization at the senior level. I mean, we, we talk on this podcast a lot about executive alignment and executive leadership and buy-in and support for projects in order to make digital transformation successful. And that's equally true for a supply chain transformation and, and a supply chain tech transformation as well. And so I think by elevating that role to the, to the C-suite, um, it's giving visibility and focus on and leadership surrounding supply chain management, including the technology around it. So I think it's an opportunity to allow supply chain management to have a seat at the table in the boardroom. And it's also a way to ensure that supply chain management gets treated as a potential core competency for organizations where it makes sense. I don't think every organization needs a chief supply chain officer necessarily, but the ones that value supply chain management and where it is a competitive edge or could be a competitive edge creating that role and that 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 sort of buy-in and alignment in the organization is, is super critical. Absolutely. Well, this this report kind of goes into the importance of the roadmap and understanding kind of supply chain and and how to essentially establish your own effective and healthy supply chain. So I think it's a great kind of precursor to conversation I'm really looking forward to with you and Laura. Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited too. Laura has never been our, on our show before, but I've, I've followed her. I've just started following her actually this year in 2023. I, I came across her, uh, one of her articles on LinkedIn, I believe it was, and I was fascinated by it. And I thought it was a really well-written article. And then I started going down a bunch of rabbit holes of other stuff she's written. She's got some really good content out on uh, social media, including LinkedIn. Um, and that guest who we're talking about shall not remain nameless. Uh, her name is Laura Cesiri. Um, she's, with a, she's an analyst with a company called Supply Chain Insights. 
and she used to work at Gardner and MR and, and other research firms. And she's been an industry analyst, I think, for her whole career. I'll let her explain her own background, uh, but wanted to have her on the show to talk about uh, some of the trends she's seeing in supply chain management and technology around supply chain management as well. Uh, and then later in the show, we're going to uh, preview for you our pre-implementation planning uh, coaching program. We're going to play you a little sort of free snippet or preview of that coaching program um, later in the show. And then we'll also give you some links and a, a QR code to access the full the full program as well. But you give, we'll give you a preview of that here today. And that'll be later in the show after we have Laura on. But uh, we're going to have Laura on first. We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. We'll be right back. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 143. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Cheatham. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday at transformationgroundcontrol.com. And we also stream new episodes every Wednesday to LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. And you can also find it on audio podcast platforms throughout the world as well. I'm excited for our next guest, our first guest of today's episode, and also a first time guest on this show. This is Laura Sassiri from Supply Chain Insights, and uh, she's going to be on the show talking about the intersection of enterprise technology and supply chain management, among other things. We're going to talk about supply chain trends, technology trends within supply chain management, and I've uh, got a lot of good questions to get started here today. So with that all being said, Laura, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's always good to talk about supply chain and technology. What better way to spend uh, a Tuesday morning, right? Right. This. So good. Well, thank you for being here. I guess just to start, this is the, your first time on the uh, podcast and actually the first time you and I have spoken uh, in person or face-to-face. -face. So maybe tell us a little bit about yourself and about your company, if you don't mind. So let's start with who's Laura Sassiri. I am an industry analyst and I like to tell people that industry analysts are different than consultants. Consultants know the answers. So congratulations, you know the answers. But industry analysts are trying to figure out the questions. So I triangulate the market. I do primary research with my LinkedIn audience of 324,000 people. And I sit on a database of 25 years of financial data. And so I'm always triangulating to answer the question of what did people do and did it drive value? And then I write on a blog called The Supply Chain Shaman, which is read by 28,000 people around the world. And I give thanks for that. And I write for Forbes. and. I became an analyst uh, through many years of working in supply chain, 20 years of running manufacturing and distribution centers, 15 years building software, and 10 prior years uh, being an industry analyst for Gartner Group and then AMR Research. And that's a little my background. Have I bored you yet? Not at all. I, in fact, how I found you was um, I, I read some, I found one of your articles, I think on LinkedIn. 
and one thing that struck me is how you don't write like most analysts. So in other words, you know, <laughs> what I read from you isn't at all, it doesn't sound like something you would read from Gardner, Amar, some of the places you've worked in the past. I'm just curious, being you know, kind of having your own analyst shop, if you will, does that give you a certain amount of flexibility or more more flexibility and leeway in what you can say and do, even if it runs counter to the the common industry narrative? Well, you know, I don't write like most analysts. It's probably because they have more grammar errors, so, you know, because <laughs> I, I don't have as many editors, right? So when I used to write for Gartner, you know, it would take me three weeks to get an article out, right? Because, you know, you'd go to editor one and review B and, uh, you know, at AMR, I used to write weekly and I just like to write. And, um, you know, it's something that I like to tell stories and I try to tell stories as I write because I think they're memorable. And also I'm known uh, for telling it like it is. I'm kind of, uh, you know, you know, direct and, you know, try to weave in some research and some stories. And, and I think people like the directness and the fact that nobody pays me for my ink and I have no advertising on the blog and I give away all of my writing for free because I don't believe research should be behind the firewall. And I hope that it helps people, you know, in my heart of hearts, I Hope when they put Laura Ciceri in the grave, somebody's going to say, wow, that gal helped me. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that directness is probably is where I, what I was picking up on when I first read your stuff. And it, it was uh, unfiltered. It just felt like, you know, it yeah. wasn't censored by a sponsor or anything like that. I mean, you could tell that you're just writing what you believe and what you found and what you, what right. you think versus what someone else wants you to say, which is oftentimes what I get when I read analyst report just kind of like okay who paid for that report and why are you why, why are you being so positive about um a right. certain product or whatever the case may be um so so very interesting i also read a recently i read an article one of your articles i think it was on linkedin and your newsletter which is really good if, if those of you listening if you don't subscribe to her newsletter i highly recommend it you've got some really good articles on linkedin if you just go to her profile you can find the the newsletter there um and what's the name of the the, the uh, newsletter again what do you call it it's uh, Supply Chain Insights Excellence. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, great. It's a great article. And, and you had one on there recently about your 10-year, um, not your 10-year-old self, but what you would tell yourself 10 years ago. And in some of the, and this wasn't on my list of questions I told you I was going to ask you, but it just, <laughs> I just thought of it. Um, what, uh, maybe tell us a little bit about that. Like, what are some of those lessons? Just because I think it's super interesting for the audience to hear what you would have told yourself 10 years ago uh, versus now, if you knew then what you know now. So let me give you a little background. Um, 20 years ago, I was asked to be a LinkedIn influencer, which I, at the time I didn't really value because I was like, if people need to get a hold of me, you know, they know my phone number and my email. What's this thing, LinkedIn? And I was a late adopter into LinkedIn and they asked me to be a LinkedIn influencer, which is a great honor. And I didn't realize it at the time. And, you know, at that point in time, I had 80,000 people that followed me on LinkedIn. And now I'm humbled to have 325,000. And so LinkedIn would give you a question every month to write, you know, a prompt, you know, answer, do a blog. And one was, what would you tell your ex-self 10 years ago? And so I wrote an article, what would I tell my 50-year-old self, which was all about don't take family relationships for granted. At the time I was 50, my mother was alive. You know, I had a great relationship with my daughter. I was happily married. You know, and so I was kind of skipping through life. And, you know, in the 10 years after many of those relationships, you know, disintegrated and 
you know, I didn't really value, you know, those relationships at the time to the degree that I should have. So that article was all about, you know, recognizing that and what I would tell my 50 year old self. What I would tell my 60 year old self is prepare yourself for aging. Uh, as you age, you know, circle of influence becomes smaller. Many people retire in their 50s and I find that they struggle with cognitive capabilities and a declining circle of friends. And so, you know, the first thing is, you know, work until you don't want to work anymore, right? So I like doing what I'm doing and, you know, I make myself work out every day. So I run or swim or lift weights or do ballet in the basement. And I think that's really important because I struggled with uh, osteoporosis and, um, it's also about, you know, having fun in life and trying to strike the new balance. So I garden and, you know, pursue your activities. And it was funny because, uh, you know, people like those articles. And I, I hope I make somebody's day somewhere over a cup of coffee. Yeah. Yeah, well, it definitely made mine. And um, I thought it was a, a great article and, and sort of a, a reflective article, well-written, very personal. And um, Thank you. It, it, that's, that's what I mean by... You're, you don't sound like a typical analyst because I don't think <laughs> I haven't seen any articles from Gardner talking about how, you know, what they would have told themselves 10 years ago. So that's, that's very <laughs> unique that you're doing that. Yeah. Um, I want to um, also thank um, the audience here. Um, just one comment, just while we're getting started here. This is from Mohammed on LinkedIn. Mohammed says, I'm excited to hear Laura speak. I've been following her for quite some time ever since I started working in SOP and demand planning. So at least one person so far that uh, you have influenced and impacted in their career. So um, thank you for being well, here. Well, thank Mohammed. you. Yeah, I see a lot of people from Colorado and Montreal. And uh, yeah, so it's always good to connect with a global audience, London. Yep, Finland, India, uh, London again, Montreal, Spain. Um, so thank you everyone for uh, dropping in the chat where you're joining from today. Um, just to maybe get started and sort of set the context for the the sort of the meat of the conversation here today, though, is is we talk about uh, trends in the in the tech space. That's a lot of what we talk about on this show. Uh, but we haven't done so in the context of supply chain management in particular. So maybe talk a little bit about what you're seeing in your research and experience as far as the most important trends that you're seeing at that intersection of enterprise technology and supply chain management. I think at the intersection, we're very confused. Uh, I think that, you know, supply chain has grown up under some assumptions that are no longer valid. One that if I'm really good at transactional efficiency, I'll be really good at insights. And that has not proven to be true. The global supply chain was also built on the belief that governments would be rational, logistics would always be available, supply would be available, and we just needed to focus on price. And that also is not true. And the variability would be low and history would be a good predictor of demand and supply. All of those assumptions have been cast to the wind with the combination of war and it's the horrific nature of what's happening in the world today and also um, the pandemic. And so as we focus now on this thing called supply chain, that's a complex nonlinear system where we've had an increasing gap in organizations and the ability of companies to really drive effectiveness, people are saying, well, what's next? And I think what's next is the movement from inside out processes where I'm focused on trying to get insights from the enterprise data, which we haven't done very well, to outside in, which is how do I get insights from market data? How do I decrease demand and data latency? Demand latency being the time from purchase at the shelf or the ultimate consumer 
to an order, which order latency or demand latency has actually increased three times as we've widened the product portfolio and moved into e-commerce, but also data latency, the ability to take data and drive insights. I did a class the other day and one of my participants said, Laura, I've got 1,700 people in my group that have data in their title, but we have no insights. And the reason why we have no insights is we've been slow to adopt Web 2.0 technologies for schema on read versus schema on write and to be able to use very different data sets. 80% of the data surrounding the supply chain is not used. Things like streaming data and unstructured data and image data. And instead, what we've invested in is rows and columns and relational databases and focused on transactional data. And so as we look at how those assumptions are changing and the evolution of the art of the possible, we have this whole world opening up to us about how we can do things better, how we can drive self-service and planning and redefine the role of planners. You know, planners are sort of like short order cooks, you know, delivering insights to business leaders, but why are business leaders not doing that themselves? It's because we've not designed the systems for that or being able to decrease the latency of being able to make decisions faster and better and to be able to drive balance re results easier. So those are some of the trends I'm seeing. Does that help? It does. Yeah. And it, it sounds like, you know, more of a, maybe less of a focus on efficiency and transactions and more of a focus on, on more strategic, there's more strategic nature of data and the insights that, that you're talking about there. Well, you know, many people think the efficient supply chain is the most effective, and I'm sorry, I'm going to go off here on a tangent, but the efficient supply chain, which is the lowest cost, is only good for high volume, very predictable products, which is 20 to 25% of what we produce. And what we have is the need for the responsive supply chain, which is all about short time, you know, whether it's pharmaceuticals or bathing suits or suntan lotion or semiconductors. We have a supply chain that needs to respond very quickly, and that can never be low cost. Or the agile supply chain, which is very low volume, very hard to predict. And so what I see in this outside-in flow is the ability to do bidirectional orchestration on each of the flows, because as we move to the graph and we move to rules-based ontological frameworks, we can model each of those flows very differently outside-in. And I find that to be very exciting because the assumption that the efficient supply chain is effective is not true. We're here with Laura Ciceri talking about supply chain management and the intersection with enterprise technology. We've got a lot more to cover. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. I'm excited to share our newly released 2024 Digital Enterprise Operations Report. This free download is available on the Third Stage website at thirdstage-consulting.com. This report is truly packed full of technology independent and agnostic insights for your project to ensure that you're strategically optimized for success. Download your copy today with the QR code in front of me or visit our website for more details. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 143. My name is Eric Kimberling. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday at transformationgroundcontrol.com. 
be sure to check out new episodes every Wednesday. And you can also go to transformationgroundcontrol.com to find all the past episodes that you may have missed from the show as well. So we're here in the middle of a conversation with Laura Ciceri from Supply Chain Insights. We're talking about supply chain management, technology trends, and the intersection of supply chain and technology. Let's jump back into the conversation. And it sort of links to a question here from Sam on LinkedIn. Um, do you think that some organizations or most organizations confuse efficiency with effectiveness or they, do they just not even think about effectiveness or they, are they hyper-focused on efficiency? Well, it depends upon the organization. I think if you ask any CFO, he will automatically say the most efficient supply chain is most effective. Uh, and so this is the opportunity for us to use network design simulation tools to show the impact of different flows and the impact on the balance sheet. Most of our decisions have been made on Excel spreadsheets, so we're not able to see the impact of variability or the nonlinear relationship of the supply chain. So we must always educate. But you know, you read the literature, you go to any of the conferences, you'll often hear people talk about the efficient supply chains the most effective. And that is really something we need to challenge and we need to type our supply chain so people can look at things that have high coefficient of variation and volume to be able to say, can I ever manage that efficiently? Hmm. Right. Yeah, it makes makes total sense. Um, you, you know, speaking of this whole, you know, confusion or, or lack of focus on both efficiency and effectiveness. Um, one of the things that I found on your your LinkedIn page, which is very good, not just the newsletter, but you post a lot of documents outlining in detail your research, which I find super fascinating. And it sort of ties back to your point about how you want to make research available to all and not hide it behind a firewall. And you have a lot of detailed data and analysis and all really good like PowerPoint decks and things like that that you've posted on your on your LinkedIn page. But one of the things you you talk about in your research is, is supply chains to admire. And I think what you're doing is you're comparing the supply chains you admire, you're comparing that to what Gardner and others are are saying are, are good supply chains. What can you tell us a little bit about that supply chains to admire list and what some of the key takeaways are from that research you've done? Yeah, so when I was at AMR Research, we developed the what is now the Gartner Top 25. And it's one of those things where you're in an organization and you don't agree with the direction, but you're overruled. And so right. I worked with a guy by the name of Kevin O'Meara who came up with this Gartner Top 25. And the Gartner Top 25 is based upon the belief that you know what a good supply chain is. And I used to tell Kevin, it really needs to be very research-based, based upon balance sheets. And this Gartner Top 25 is based upon opinion, and it's 25% the analyst opinion, which I never felt comfortable as a Gartner analyst or an AMR analyst, even though I worked with over 600 companies to say that I really knew what excellence was without really looking at balance sheets. And then the other 25% is the commonly held belief of supply chain leaders. And what happens is the people that speak on stage tend to be favored as supply chain leaders like Procter & Gamble, right? Procter & Gamble had 0% growth for the last five years. Can you say that that is a leader, right? Uh, they've paid a lot of money to not grow. And so what I did was I worked with Arizona State University to basically say which factors in a balance scorecard would drive the highest market capitalization and price to tangible book. And I gathered data from a syndicated source called Y Charts 
and I build what is called orbit charts, which looks at the intersection of the metrics of operating margin and inventory turns and growth and return on invested capital with the belief that the supply chain is a complex nonlinear system. And I study the patterns and I ask the question, is this company driving improvement off the orbit charts, which is a vector analysis, and are they outperforming the peer group in these metrics? Because you must know if they're outperforming the peer group. And if so, they're a supply chain to admire award winner. So it's very much based upon results. It's based upon the questions of, are they driving improvement? Are they outperforming their peer group? And are they driving value on either market capitalization or price to book? And there are only three companies in common with my supply chains to admire Oh, by the way, I'm currently writing that report that will actually come out for this past period uh, this month. And there are only three companies that have any overlap with the Gartner Top 25. And the companies that have overlap tend to be smaller companies um, and they tend to be less well known. Hmm. That's super interesting. So I like that because you, it's not, you know, you're taking some of the opinion and guesswork out of it and saying, it, you know, not just because you see someone on a stage speaking or because it sounds like a good supply chain or even on paper, if you look at the operations, it could look like a great supply chain, but you're looking at the actual results. You know, what, what kind of financial results is that supply chain delivering, which I think oftentimes gets overlooked. We tend to think a lot about the more qualitative stuff. You know, what's the qualitative, cool, sexy stuff that a supply chain manager is doing uh, to manage their supply chain. So that's super interesting. Um, yeah. And many of the companies I never knew, right? Like I never knew Asso Abloy, which is uh, really outperforming its category. I never knew um, the folks from Sleep Number, right? Which is outperforming its category in the furniture market. I didn't really know Cummins Engine as well as I know them now. And so, you know, I think I'm a pretty experienced analyst. You would have a hard time finding somebody who's had more years as an analyst than I have. And so what I find is that I'm constantly surprised by the companies and the strategies that are driving balance sheets. And that's what I think we need to be having discussion about. We have a lot of opinions in the industry, but we're not really holding ourselves accountable to say, at the end of the day, what's improving balance sheets, what is improving the environment, and what is improving the welfare of countries and I think that's what our discussions need to be about. Yeah. Are there are there any uh, commonalities that you see in these 25 most admired supply chains, like in addition or, or uh, in addition to the results you're talking about? Obviously, that's the, the key thing you're, you're looking at. But are, are there any sort of other correlations below the numbers that say, you know, Cummins Engines or uh, Sleep Number? These are these are some of the things they're doing in their supply chain that's different, that's delivering those results. So after I do the analysis, I interview the companies and what I'm doing is I'm looking for the patterns and the qualitative interviews. And I guess there are a couple of things that I always find out. One is they tend to have a lot of innovation at a product level and a process level. So like a sleep number doesn't sell beds. They are trying to improve sleep and their data on sleep is just as important as their beds. Intuitive Surgical is trying to redefine the surgical market with robots in the operating room. And so they're very connected with uh, product lifecycle management and how they redesign and innovate in the uh, back room. L'Oreal 
has been a long-term supply chains to admire a winner. And one of the things that I love about L'Oreal is they're very regionally focused on beauty and they're very focused at the intersection of new product launch and customer experience and use of the digital data from digital marketing into the supply chain. So each is a little different, but I find that it comes down to the intersection of product launch and supply chain, leadership, clarity around strategy, organizational alignment, uh, which we get there in several different ways, whether it's sales and operations planning or supplier development, and ethics and integrity around the product. Interesting. Yeah, that's super interesting. Um, and who knew? You know, some of these companies do. I've heard of them, but I, I didn't know that these were superior supply chain. So that's super fascinating. I'll look forward to reading that report when it comes out. Um, one of the things you talk about in your in your um, LinkedIn newsletter that I saw recently was you talk about misalignment in supply chains. And that's a topic that I'm fascinated by just organizational misalignment in general. And when you think about an organization going through change, and if they're, if they're trying to go through some sort of digital transformation or supply chain transformation, whatever it is, if internally the team is not aligned, that initiative is probably not going to go well. And so I'm always fascinated by this topic and it, it's cool to see that you're, you're focused on it too. And, but you go deep. I mean, you go into, to analyzing um, quantitatively misalignments and what some of the challenges are and you call out manufacturing and procurement as being the two areas that have the biggest misalignments across organizations in general. Um, what can you tell us just about this whole concept of misalignment and supply chain management in, in, in your research and what, what does the research show? Well, first of all, let's talk about the methodology because I'm a research gal, right? And a little bit of a research geek. So for 20 years, I've been asking the same question of how important is it to be aligned between two organizations or two functions and how would you rate your current performance? And so I rate the importance versus the actual performance, and I look at the gap analysis. And I've been asking the same question for the last 20 years. About every other year, I'll ask the question. And what I find is that the gap has grown. We've always had a lot of issues between operational teams and the commercial teams. So commercial teams are sales and marketing, operation teams are distribution, planning, manufacturing, and procurement. But 20 years ago, make, source, and deliver were more closely aligned uh, than they are today. And part of that, I think, is the functional enablement of procurement and the fact that procurement has moved to report more through the financial departments without really clear operating strategy, and only 9% of companies actually do design. And so as a result of the implementation of SRM, which there is no relationship in SRM, right? I, I don't know how we ever misnamed it. It's all been about, you know, transactions. It's not been about effective supply. It's not been about aggregate buying. And as a result, the purchasing department has become much more functionally focused. And additionally, the manufacturing department has become much more functionally focused. Without design and without clear operating strategy, these two groups have a bigger gap. In addition, you know, the IT organization and its ability to serve operations has grown in its gap. And part of that is IT standardization. When you look at IT standardization and you look at the ramp of what's happening in the art of the possible, either with near AI or generative AI or the graph or ontological thinking, 
you know, those that are forced into IT standards discussions are very frustrated that they're not able to really get on the train or, you know, be able to embrace these newer technologies. And so that gap is widened as well. And it's got it's widened threefold, which worries me. And uh, the larger the organization, the bigger the gap. I often laugh and say, we have more politics in the global organization than we have in U.S. news. And, you know, that's pretty bad. Right. You know, things are dire when uh, you, you take the, the crown for that that title. <laughs> um, very interesting. Um, well, that that's super fascinating. And, and I, I suppose getting back to sort of the first question you answered about um, the changes in supply chain management with COVID and, and global uncertainty and war, all the stuff that's happening in the world that's disrupting supply chains. When you add misalignment to that, and then you add some sort of technological or transformational uh, initiative on top of that, that's just not a good recipe if you don't get that alignment in, in place first. Um, right. And the first place to start in supply chain discussion is what is excellence? And a lot of times when I ask them that, they look at me like, aren't you the dumbest analyst in the world? And maybe you think that, right? That's okay. But, you know, people aren't clear. What is excellence, right? You know, we've added 28 more days of inventory in the past decade across all industries. We shouldn't mm -hmm. be proud of that. You know, only 3% of companies outperform their peers on the balance sheet of growth, inventory turns, operating margin, return on invested capital. We shouldn't be proud of that. You know, there is no economy of scale of mergers and acquisitions that we've seen in the last two decades. We shouldn't be proud of that, right? And, you know, as I look at the waste and landfills and I look at things like the percentage of trucks that roll down the road empty, and I look at how many people have great documents on corporate social responsibility, but don't know and don't know how to measure net zero, that's a problem. Or yeah. talk about the bullwhip effect, but don't measure it and don't manage it, and that's a problem, right? Or talk about forecast error without talking about forecast value added, that's a problem, right? Or, you know, manage the inventory as both the most important buffer and the most important source of waste. That's a problem. And so I think we got a lot of opportunity. Right. Do you see the organizations that are on your most admired list? Do they do they have or do you know if they have better alignment? Is that is that one of the patterns that you uncovered as far as they, they just are more aligned and more clear on their vision for operations and supply chain management? They're more clear on what is supply chain excellence, which is often around innovation. And they're better aligned because they're driving that agenda. Uh, they also tend to be more regional, which gets to the fact that I don't think we've cracked the nut on the global supply chain. And they tend to be better as a trading partner, you know, with supplier development programs and, you know, the management of, you know, quality of design versus quality of conformance and how they deal with suppliers. And um, they tend to be better at design. You know, only 9% of companies design their supply chains. And so, you know, they're far more focused on how do they drive value versus how do they minimize cost. Right. We're here with Laura Sassiri talking about supply chain management and the intersection with enterprise technology. We've got a lot more to cover. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. 
Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 143. My name is Eric Kimberling. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday at transformationgroundcontrol.com. Be sure to check out new episodes every Wednesday. And you can also go to transformationgroundcontrol.com to find all the past episodes that you may have missed from this show as well. So we're here in the middle of a conversation with Laura Ciceri from Supply Chain Insights. We're talking about supply chain management, technology trends, and the intersection of supply chain and technology. Let's jump back into the conversation. Here's an interesting question that's um, that's that's an interesting one, and it ties to a lot of the topics we cover in this podcast and in, in other episodes. Um, but this is from Muhammad on LinkedIn, and Muhammad asks for a question with very primitive supply chain operations wanting to move towards digitization. Which supply chain function should be moved to ERP technology first? And I guess let me add to that and say, should it be moved to ERP technology, or are there better ways to automate supply chains, or what's some, what are some of the options? Maybe just what what is your knee jerk reaction to that whole sort of bucket of question there? Well, I think ERP is very important for transactional efficiency of order to cash, procure to pay. And we wouldn't have grown global supply chains without that. Mm -hmm. However, if I am a small organization, I want to be a good trading partner and I want to maximize the value of the third parties around me. So maybe it's a third party logistics, a freight forwarder, uh, perhaps it's a supplier. And what I would want to do is say, you know, what's available to me that I could use easily without having to roll my own or do my own implementations? And how do I learn there? And I wouldn't necessarily copy what we have done in the more established uh, trading countries of the United States or Europe into what you're going to do there. I would be looking at more cloud-based, more, um, you know, outside-in kind of processes. And I'd also be very careful what I call digital, because we don't have a consistent definition of digital. And I define digital as the ability to rethink the atoms and electrons of the supply chain, whereas many people define digital as hands-free or uh, without paper. And so, you know, we use a lot of terms and we don't do ourselves any service if we don't define it. So that's how I answer the question. How would you answer the question? Yeah, I, I think it's spot on. And, and I was actually thinking back to a comment you made earlier about or what you were just talking about a few minutes ago about efficiency versus effectiveness. And ERP technology is generally good to drive efficiency. And if we're talking about transactional efficiency, great. ERP is going to potentially help with that. But to your other point about being effective and having insights into your supply chain and really understanding strategically what you're doing and how you can improve it and optimize it, I don't necessarily think ERP is the best route to take there. I, th I know there's supply chain management focused solutions that do a better job of that and you know are doing a better job with analytics and AI and machine learning and things like that that'll 
maybe do both, you know, sort of the efficiency side of it, but also give you those insights and allow you to focus on effectiveness too. But the first thing you got to say is what does effectiveness mean? How many supply chains do I have and what are the goals, right? If I'm very focused on time, you know, I want to look at those cycle times. If I'm very focused on, you know, maybe e-commerce or late stage postponement, I want to be able to look at the agile supply chain design and designing the supply chain for that outcome is I think a really important step. And if you don't have the technology to do that, I would invest in getting that design done regularly to be able to look at what the potential of the supply chain is and how you drive outcomes. Yeah, absolutely. What about this goes back to the, um, the alignment question somewhat. Um, this is from Kyler on LinkedIn and Kyler asks, supply chains have been notoriously siloed in organizations. How do you ensure that leadership has effective visibility into supply chain metrics in order to make strategic decisions? Well, you know, we've grown up in silos and they make us feel really comfortable. They define our organizational paths. And many people on the leadership teams don't know make source and deliver together. <clears throat> I remember I grew up in manufacturing and I was asked to go run a distribution center. And I'm like, oh yeah, I can go do that. That's no problem. And the first day I short shipped 220 trucks, right? And I had to go downtown and you know, pay fines because the truckers were clogging up the roads. Well, I didn't know distribution. Very few companies have those cross-functional move career paths that allow people to really understand source, make, and deliver together. So if you're in one of those companies, count yourself as fortunate. The second thing is that most of our network design tools are not used at the board level or the executive team level to help people to understand the intersection action between source, make, and deliver. So take those tools to the boardroom, you know, make them get off their Excel spreadsheet and see the impact of variability and to see the volume and variability relationships and the relationship between the metrics. The other thing, and I wrote a book about this, is try to get yourself off of functional metrics like OEE and lowest manufacturing cost and purchase price variance and forecast error and move to reliability metrics in the function. Things like forecast value add and inventory health, reducing slow and obsolete inventory, or move from cost to margin so that you're looking at total margin, not just a functional cost and make yourself do that. And as part of that, then you'll drive a totally different discussion. Right, yeah. Yeah, very, very, uh, very sound advice for sure. Um, here's a, a, a comment here from Celine on LinkedIn. Celine says, says, good morning, everyone. Great to see Laura as a guest. Her insights on supply chain processes and definition definitions are an eye opener. So you have uh, your your fans are your fans are listening <laughs> in here today. So thank you for uh, for that comment, Celine. All um, old gals need fans, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah, that's that's why we all do this, right? Is to build our fan base. Right? Yeah. So yeah, Kyler has another follow-up question on LinkedIn in terms of what are some red flags when evaluating supply supply chain management technologies in general? What are you know what are some of the sort of pitfalls and risks or mistakes you see organizations make when they go to digitalize their uh, supply chains? The first pitfall is definition, right? What is digital? And then if people fall into the end-to-end -end trap, we really don't have end-to-end -end solutions, you know. We don't have anything in common between DRP and TMS. 
are between MRP and really manufacturing. So we don't have end-to-end -end solutions and we've got a lot of pretty PowerPoints that make us think that we have them. And so you've got to kind of carefully craft your road of, you know, what is you're trying to do? If you're saying you're going to be digital, why and what is the problem you're trying to solve? And what are the best technologies to do that and get out of the PowerPoints and the acronyms, test and learn. And when you test and learn, I'm a big advocate of design thinking because the first couple of tests you're going to have, you probably are going to fail and you're going to need as an organization to celebrate failure. And you're going to have to work with the organization to say, as I'm on this path, I don't want to be hamstrung by either a fixed ROI or a project plan but I want to solve a business problem. And, you know, on that journey, you know, help people to learn what you're learning and then drive that improvement. Right. But what I see so often is people will get a consultant that really doesn't understand supply chain with pretty words and pretty PowerPoints and put an RFP in the market, which is usually very badly written, and then chase a very badly written RFP and the project doesn't work. You know, I think it's telling that in the pandemic, 93% of the decisions were made on Excel spreadsheets, even though 95% of companies have advanced planning. That's not a good statement, right? Hmm. It's because wow. we poorly implemented and we didn't design those systems for the level of variability that we experienced in the pandemic. And even now, order history is not such that we can use conventional demand planning well. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's definitely not not something to be proud of to use your term from earlier, uh, earlier in the conversation. Um, you talk about in your writings, I, I believe on LinkedIn is where I saw this, but you talk about the need for a supply chain reset. What, what is a supply chain reset and why do you think this concept is so important in today's day and age? Well, I think the supply chain reset says, how do I take advantage of the art of the possible or the newer technologies? and really drive insights and decrease the latency for decisions and improve decisions. So number one, we don't measure the quality of the decisions, right? And when we implement, whether it's advanced planning or SRM or CRM, we don't really measure, are we making better decisions? Are we making better decisions quickly? Are we making better decisions on market data? We typically implement the systems and we look at, efficiency, you know, of, you know, how many people or, you know, how quickly I do a batch job. So one is evaluate work and how should we really redesign work? The second thing is, as we look at the supply chain reset and we look at those assumptions I talked about earlier with, you know, that governments would be rational, that logistics and supply would be readily available and that variability would be low look at how we go from inside out processes to outside in processes to decrease that latency and use the data. In that process, you're gonna find that most of what we invested in, which are relational database kind of companies really hamstrung by the fact that our in-memory logic in those relational databases was so limited, you'll find that most of that technology will be legacy. But if you can free yourself up to look at what data do I have? What data do I need? What questions am I answering? And look at the newer technologies of the graph and ontological frameworks and NoSQL. 
there's a great opportunity for those outside-in processes to shorten latency, drive insights, and really drive value. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. And, and along those lines too, you posted an article. It was it was a bit dated. I think you wrote it in 2020, if I remember correctly. But you were talking about the um, supply chains of 2030. And so your mm -hmm. predictions for what supply chains are going to look like. And I imagine, I'm just going to assume that since you wrote that article, and maybe you have a newer one that I didn't see, but since you wrote that article, I have to imagine things have probably changed in your mind or in your analysis of supply chain management, given all the macro trends that you talked about with war happening now and the pandemic, et cetera. But what, how would you describe or how, what are some of the big trends you're seeing that you think are going to sort of become more and more relevant in the coming years and, and what is the supply chain of 2030 and beyond? What, what does that look like in your opinion? Well, and what would I like it to look like? Um, you know, this concept of self-service I think is a really important one. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we have self-service HR and uh, we have self-service procurement. Why do we not have self-service planning? You know, I work with companies in 2002, they had 200 planners. 2007, they had 400 planners. 2019, they had 1,700 planners. Today, they have 2,500 planners. I mean, like, what is wrong with that picture? If you have that kind of growth in planners, we're becoming very reactive. We're not becoming responsive. We're not really driving insights. So how did we get caught in this loop of planners really chasing data versus systems driving insights and business leaders able to get their own data. So I want to redesign work for self-service planning and insights where we can sense and respond and we can do that more effectively. Now, some people might say, well, Laura, the answer there is generative AI. And I think we're a long ways away from generative AI driving the supply chain. I think generative AI can help us with reporting, uh, you know, self-service reporting. But I think NARA AI and the graph offer us a great opportunity to manage flow, which I think the more advanced supply chains manage flow and they manage transactions and they manage them together along with insights. And then uh, the models are different based upon flow. And right now we're talking about engines, not really talking about learning models. And so as we think about models that learn, and we think about models that learn with all kinds of data, whether it's unstructured data or image data or streaming data, and we can solve new problems and we have to be open to that. Right. We're here with Laura Ciceri talking about supply chain management and the intersection with enterprise technology. We've got a lot more to cover. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. Could you whisper in my ear the things you want to feel? Interested in working for a company that truly values your unique skills and experience? Here at Third Stage, we don't hire based on resumes alone. We look at the full candidate, experience, and willingness to provide excellent service for our clients. Within a technology independent and agnostic consulting firm, you have the opportunity to learn across industries with a diverse group of clients. Our consultants also have the opportunity to diversify their portfolio and learn across technology systems. If you're interested in joining a high growth entrepreneurial organization, please reach out to us at work at thirdstage-consulting.com.
Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 143. My name is Eric Kimberling. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday at transformationgroundcontrol.com. Be sure to check out new episodes every Wednesday, and you can also go to transformationgroundcontrol.com to find all the past episodes that you may have missed from this show as well. So we're here in the middle of a conversation with Laura Ciceri from Supply Chain Insights. We're talking about supply chain management, technology trends, and the intersection of supply chain and technology. Let's jump back into the conversation. Do you think there's a disconnect between where you think supply chains will go and where you want them to go? You know, I, you know, I, I'm not, I don't flatter myself that, you know, where I want them to go is where they're going to go. I'm frustrated that our level of innovation is so low and our level of understanding is so low. You know, when I was an industry analyst at a company called AMR Research uh, about 2005, I asked the question in a quantitative research piece of how many companies considered themselves innovators and how many considered themselves late adopters and laggards. And I was frustrated when I was was at Gartner because Gartner really talks to the late adopter CIO and that's not my audience. And at that point in time, I had a bell curve of equal number of innovative companies as late adopters. What's happened is a skewed distribution as people have focused on IT standardization, whereas only 7% of companies today consider themselves innovators. And I think we've got to innovate ourselves out of the problems of ESG and you know tight supply and feeding the world uh, I think it requires innovation. And my frustration is we aren't doing enough process innovation. We're doing product innovation. We're not doing enough test and learn with new technologies. So will 2030 look like what Laura Ciceri wants it to be? I don't know, but I'm hoping we can solve big problems. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of these problems have sort of been percolating for a long time. It seems like since, um, you know, the eighties and nineties when supply chain management really became a thing and, you know, organizations built these big global supply chains, you know, that was 30 plus years ago. And in many ways, the supply chains haven't changed fast enough, you know, to keep up with some of these realities that we're facing today. Yeah. 1982 was when we first wrote about supply chain as source, make and deliver together. And if only we were able to achieve that objective. Right. Right. Now you talked about um, AI a moment ago, generative AI, and this is a question from Ryan on LinkedIn. And Ryan asked a question that's related to that thread, which is how do you envision the role of AI in driving advancements in supply chain management while concurrently ensuring the security integrity data? What are your thoughts of AI in general, you know, within supply chain management? Well, I'm first of all, I'm amazed that people are so excited about AI and don't really understand web 2.0 and web 3.0 tools and technologies and capabilities, right? So I'm just fascinated what, you know, lights the hype cycle. Second thing is when people talk about AI, I talk about, well, what does it mean to you, right? You know, and uh, how do you define it? And most people are pretty sloppy in their definitions and they're saying generative AI without really thinking about, we're not ready for generative AI. If only 2% of companies are clear on their operating strategy and 9% of companies design their supply chain, if you let generative AI loose, it would be like, you know, my dog's loose in the kitchen, right? I mean, it would be, you know, just pandemonium because generative AI is not able to discern political bias. It's not able to discern, you know, the truth. And so what we've got to do is get really clear on what is supply chain excellence and how do we design the supply chain for flow, 
before we can ever be ready for generative AI. So I think generative AI will be good for content development, things like training manuals or product use manuals or you know, self-service reporting, but not really to drive engines in the supply chain. Nara AI, on the other hand, which is more of a bounded model, uh, it's, you know, using pattern recognition, you know, to define the inputs. And then Nara AI is giving you the outputs. Really very excited about that as an engine choice. But the graph, I think, is extremely powerful. And one of my frustrations is there are a lot of companies that are starting to do work on a graph to be able to look at nodes and flow but people aren't ready to change their mindset from transactional rows and columns to flow. And as a result, what's happening is the companies that are building on the graph are just really replicating the processes that were based on transactions, rows and columns. And you know, we're not moving fast enough. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Makes, makes total sense. And there's also, um, you know, the back to, to Ryan's, uh, second part of his question, he talks about security and data integrity and things of that nature. Um, that's a whole nother can of worms or a whole nother problem area that, that organizations have to think about, not just securing, ensuring that the data that they're using, not just for AI, but analytics in general, you obviously have to make sure the data is accurate and you're capturing data accurately. But then you've got the security issue of if I use generative AI to in an open AI model to create a report or to give me some insights that I'm not getting out of my core enterprise technologies, that potentially exposes, you know, that data to being not confidential or out in the, you know, kind of the public source, if you will. Right. And, you know, we've got a lot of security breach issues. I don't know if you've read about the Clorox write-off of over 500 million, right, mm -hmm. due to the breach issues, right? And so we've also got to train employees. You know, there are an awful lot of people that are trying to get your passwords and trying to get into our systems. And, all systems, you know, can be, you know, tampered with, whether it's a manufacturing system or a robot in the warehouse or, you know, a trucker, right? We've got a lot of software that can be tampered. And so security needs to be not only technology buttoned up, but, you know, our employees need to be very aware too. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so how do you think, um, back to the point we had earlier, the thread we were talking about earlier as it relates to enterprise technology. Um, how do you think the enterprise technology space will respond or evolve to address some of these supply chain trends that you're talking about? Or, or do you think they're, the, they will evolve? I mean, how, how are the vendors in general responding to these needs and providing tools and data and all the stuff that you're talking about here today? Well, it's hard for me to talk generally about supply chain because, you know, I've got different spaces I follow. One is planning. And, you know, the failure of SAP and APO and the movement to IBP gave great lift to companies like Canaxis and O9 and OMP. And, you know, my fear is that those companies see it, that they're doing a lot of things right versus, you know, that failure lifted their boats. And so, you know, as they have lots of customer activity, I worry that they're not driving enough innovation. And then I have the networks that are starting to grow up, whether it's EverStream Analytics or SupplyOn or One Network or, um, you know, the work that, you know, the National Association of Manufacturing is trying to do on networks. Those need to really drive 
interoperability, just not focus on integration, where we're actually moving the semantic layer and we're looking at, you know, how do we have single sign on? Because we have no interoperability between networks. And I do an open uh, call every month where we talk about what's happening in the network technologies and how do we move from integration to interoperability and really build networks because we're not doing very well on building networks. In the supply chain execution space where I've got a lot of streaming data coming in from, you know, four kites and project 44, et cetera, we're bringing that into kind of dead ends that we call control towers, right? Which we're not really controlling anything there and we're really not driving visibility. And what we need to have happen is those solutions need to get on with it and redefine transportation management so that we're able to look that route guides and first pass tender as we do it today is really obsolete. And then as we deal with manufacturing environment, and we deal with the Internet of Things and we deal with, you know, the automation of manufacturing and the automation of distribution centers. You know, we need to be able to reskill our workers so that we can deal with the Internet of Things and we can redefine things like predictive maintenance and we can redefine, you know, how we actually manage our warehouse for real time perpetual inventory. You know, I work with a company that has. 44 Manhattan systems, you might think, well, it'd be easy to roll up a perpetual inventory signal. Well, it takes them eight hours, right? Because mm -hmm. each of those Manhattan systems has a different configuration, a different batch job. And so getting to a real-time perpetual inventory signal allows us to really open up the world for rules and policy for multi-channel. So, you know, I think that on one hand, we've got a lot of excitement, a lot of opportunity. On the other hand, we've got slow adoption. And so I want us just to get on with it. I think it's going to take big impetus, right? Uh, either, you know, we're going to be taxed for, you know, scope three emissions and people are going to have to get serious about measuring net zero, or we're going to have to face the fact that we can't feed the world population and get on with, you know, how we manage the food supply chain or we're going to you know, continue down this unfortunate path of war where we're just not able to get enough ammunition right now because we managed the um, warfare supply chain as an efficient supply chain, which really needs to be responsive to get enough ammunition. So I think it depends upon the thrust that are thrust upon the supply chain to the level we're going to drive innovation. Right, yeah, that's, that's super interesting. And you know, you touch on, uh some things that, you know, maybe is a, a good place to start or, you know, something I, I, I could better explain supply chain management to our audience related to it, which is that supply chain management is so critical. I mean, it's, it's critical in so many ways. You talk about feeding the world, you talk about its impact on the environment. Those are two really big sort of social issues that supply chain management um, can address, even if it's for-profit motives that are driving, you know, that are enabling that. Um, so I think that that's interesting. Are you seeing more, um, you talk about the environment a couple of times now in the net zero, um, philosophy, um, that you mentioned earlier, do you, are most supply chains and most organizations managing supply chains? Are they, is that a general focus? I know you said there's some misalignment, you know, they say it on paper that in the environment's important, sustainability is important, but then they're driving empty trucks and empty containers are coming back, you know, from other countries or whatever, some things that run counter to that, that sort of misalignment. What, where do you see sustainability in the environment sort of fitting into supply chain management now and in the future? 
Well, it's more important, and it's more important really for three reasons. One, we don't have as much of base resources, whether it's water or, you know, yield or, um, you know, supply, right? And we're not necessarily managing that fourth moment of truth of recycle and circularity, right? You know, we still are throwing a lot of stuff into landfills and not really conserving water to the degree we're going to have to. So that's first, you know, is limited resources. But the second is potential taxation and the discipline around ownership of the planet, which I think is going to happen. And we're very exposed because, you know, we're not measuring net zero. We're not measuring the bulwark effect. We're not managing the waste streams in our supply chain. And people are going to wake up and go, I've been investing in enterprise systems, but I haven't really invested in the networks. And the networks are old technology. They're EDI. We've been slow to really embrace, you know, what could happen with those networks if we could drive interoperability. There is no way to get from Ariba to Alimica to eat open in today's systems. There is, you know, not the automation of source make and deliver together. I've got some networks like Nology who automate manufacturing, some that automate sourcing, but nothing that really helps me move across source make and deliver easily. So there's an opportunity for us to really redefine those networks and do that more effectively. Yeah. So this was some thoughts. All right. Thank you, Laura. Great conversation. Appreciate having you here today and uh, would love to have you back on the show at some point in the future. So uh, thank you again for a great conversation. Um, so much that we covered in that conversation and so many threads to pull on. We're going to debrief and, and cover a couple of additional topics in detail here in just a moment. First, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Hello and welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 143. My name is Eric Kimberlinger with Kyler Cheatham. And Kyler, we just had Laura Ceciri on the show talking about uh, supply chain management, enterprise tech, overall trends in the space, all kinds of stuff. It's pretty, pretty all-encompassing, pretty broad conversation. What were some of your thoughts and takeaways and follow-ups from that conversation? Well, that was, that was such a dense conversation filled with so many insights, so much so that I actually ran out of paper in my notebook and I had to get my son's um, preschool homework to finish my notes on um, because there was so much. He actually he ran he, out of paper. I know. So I ran out of paper. That's his waffle and pap tart. If you can't see it, he had to draw his favorite foods. But I had to um, grab that to kind of finish my notes around it because there was so much great insight to that conversation. Um, and it's one I feel like we could break down into a few different 
videos to be able to expand upon. Um, so thank you, Laura, for joining us and explaining all of those really technical subjects on a, on a really, um, really um, understandable level. So I thought, you know, that was a great way to do that. And I can't wait to read some of her content. Some of the things I wanted to ask you about, and this kind of goes along with our hot topics, is she talked about this idea of kind of a cross-functional career path and understanding, you know, when you are kind of trying to achieve a supply chain transformation, trying to understand the supply chain, have visibility to it, um, you know, support it within your organization, you need to understand those cross-functional initiatives within each department. So I wondered if you are in the midst of trying to go through a supply chain management transformation, business process management, road mapping, all of those different processes, how do you ensure that you have that cross-functional understanding within your project leadership team? Yeah, well, that's a great question. I mean, a lot of times, first of all, it starts with with the leadership making it a priority, you know, in, in that leadership, it might start with the CEO and it usually does start with the CEO as far as defining and, and articulating why it's so important. Um, but then as far as, you know, how to get people to move beyond not only understanding it's important, but then how do you actually get to that visibility and understanding? It's really looking at your end-to-end -end processes and, and sort of what is your current state model and in terms of your operations and the organization, the way you're structured, and the way process and information flows now. And what would you like it to be and what should it be in the future? What could it be in the future if you had better technologies, better processes, better, you know, organizational support, that sort of thing. So I think it starts with this, the, you know, the executive leadership and buy-in and, and visioning for what it should be. But then it goes down another layer beyond that to, to define that future state operating model in, in a bit of detail that looks at the end-to-end -end operating model as well. Absolutely. Um, you know, and, and that understanding is so critical. And we, um, you know, we've seen some crossover uh, in our, our client work that, for example, some of our clients that do race car manufacturing have actually moved into the aerospace and defense, because if you can build a really fast, light race car, you can also build a very fast, light rocket. So you had mentioned kind of going into new product lines or new areas in which you create that competitive advantage, but it really starts with kind of a deeper understanding of a supply chain. And in that example, you went from creating, you know, two inch bolts to nine inch bolts. So now those raw materials go up in inventory and how do you manage that and source that and all of those different pieces. It's really about kind of, it sounds like from your conversation, breaking down each piece of that and going into kind of the analyst mode, like Laura was saying, get curious, discover all of those different data points around how can you optimize your supply chain to remain competitive? Yeah, absolutely. And that, that requires a different way of thinking. You know, it's not just, uh, to her point, it's not just an efficiency play. It's not just a focus on how do we increase the volume and the throughput and the number of transactions in a supply chain. It's looking at, you know, do we, are we sourcing the right materials? Like, like you said, you know, do we have the right raw materials? Could we be um, somehow incorporating product design into our supply chain management? Um, even just our vendor management strategies, you know, do we have the right suppliers? Are they in the right places? Do we have backups in case there's a war or there's a pandemic or something like that, that creates some sort of uncertainty or problems in our supply chain? How do we, how do we ensure that we've got 
a resilient and flexible supply chain that can do all those things. And it requires a, a different way of thinking about supply chain management. And that's why I love that conversation with her because she really does, through her research and experience, open up our eyes to how supply chains could and should look in the future. I mean, and it, it's certainly critical, um, as she mentioned, to just overall emerging technologies, emerging cultures, you know, current cultures and understanding kind of the socioeconomic impact of things like supply chain, because it doesn't just affect business. It really does affect life in general. So I thought that was, you know, a really impactful point on on both of your conversation um, sides to, you know, kind of showcase the not only the enterprise technology power of supply chain, but also, you know, in the, the critical uses just around the globe um, for maintaining life as we know it. So, um, you know, a great conversation. Thank you to Laura. Um, and I hope we do have her back. I will say for the audience like me that is more on the business technologist side, I used our supply chain management guide that is a free download on our website. It's also available in the link below wherever you're garnering this content as kind of a, a guidebook to that conversation, found a few things that I wanted to circle. There's also some great visuals in there. So if you do have more kind of specific supply chain needs and questions, highly recommend that asset to go through. And again, it's available for free download on our website. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, be sure to check that out. And uh, we will for sure have Laura back on the show, invite her back onto the show, because there's a lot, a lot of stuff we could continue to dive into with her and, uh, uh, really appreciate having her on the show here today. So um, thank you again, Laura, for being here. And thank you to the audience for the great questions there. Well, we're going to shift gears in here in a moment. And we're going to uh, play for you a preview of a pre-implementation coaching program that uh, we've put together and that Kyler, you've been very instrumental in putting together and you've been the face of it as well. So um, that's that's going to be a, a preview we're going to play for you later today. And we're going we're gonna, to um, actually show you the first five steps in a broader uh, coaching program that we've we've provided or are providing to the, to the global digital transformation community to help them prepare for and plan for their digital transformation and to get that strategy and roadmap in place and to be successful. So we're going to play you a preview of that here in just a moment. So stick around. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. When I wake up, well, I know I'm going to be, I'm going to be the man who wakes up next to you. When I go out, Hi, this is Eric Kimberling with Third Stage Consulting and your host of Transformation Ground Control. I want to encourage you to read our Guide to Organizational Change Management. It's a free report or a free guide that we published. It's one that I actually wrote that talks about best practices and lessons learned as it relates to change management. So as you know, on this podcast, we cover a lot of stuff related to the human sides of change, organizational change management, including training, communications, org design, all kinds of stuff as it relates to change management. So if you're trying to learn more about change management, or you're looking for more direction and ideas on how to get started on your change management strategy and your overall journey, be sure to check out this guide. You can read it by scanning the QR code on the screen in front of you, or in the links below for this particular podcast episode, you can find a link to uh, take you to the page that'll allow you to register to go ahead and download that and read it for free. So be sure to check it out. It's the guide to organizational change management uh, written by yours truly. Hope you enjoy it. Let me know what you think and hope you enjoy the rest of this episode. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 143. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Cheatham, and you can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday at transformationgroundcontrol.com. You can also find past episodes 
curated there at transformationgroundcontrol.com as well. So be sure to check that out. And uh, for our final segment here today, we've got a really interesting topic we want to cover here, Kyler, and that is this uh, a preview of this coaching program that we've put together uh, focused on pre-implementation planning. Maybe tell us a little bit about the program first, and then we'll roll you a sample and, and sort of a clip from, from that coaching program. Absolutely. Well, this um, came to fruition out of one of our most popular assets, not only on the marketing communication side, but also on our client side. We actually leave it behind at every client meeting or partner meeting that we go to, whether you engage us or not, just because the, the phase zero, as we call it, implementation planning, your circle of influence, if you will, in the project is really one of the main areas that we see as a failure point, whether it's on the implementation side, the technology, the data prep side, or the organizational change assessment and culture side. There's so many different things that you actually have to go into prep. So this is our checklist. Some feedback we had gotten on that checklist is what does this mean or what does this mean for me? So we thought we'd create an actual coaching program that takes you through step by step. What is the breakdown of this step and what are the action steps around it? So this is a preview to that. And of course, as always, we want to hear your feedback on that. Um, and then I hope you do um, visit the link below or, or scan the QR code here. This actually showcases not only our free download for our phase zero checklist, but also our coaching platform and series around phase zero um, implementation planning. So I hope you like it. Yeah, yeah, I do too. And I, I hope the audience likes it. I know I, I like it, but uh, I'm, I'm a bit biased on it, but we'll see what the audience thinks here too. So let's, let's go ahead and roll the clip of the first five steps in this uh, training program. The first step in our phase zero planning is to clearly define that future state vision and the overall objectives of your digital transformation initiative. This involves things like articulating the desired outcomes or the benefits realization that you expect to achieve. It's really critical to ensure that this vision is aligned with the overall strategy of your organization and is effectively communicated throughout each level. Now, important consideration here is you want to ensure that this isn't just a one-time project initiative. Alignment is a journey and needs to be something that is checked in on and re-secured throughout the digital transformation process. These complex processes have a lot going on and it's very easy to move away from your overall objectives of what you're trying to achieve as a business. So checking in on those and making sure your project management team has that in their manifesto is incredibly important. So speaking of that, alignment. It's essential to gain buy-in and commitment from top-level executives and key project stakeholders. Their overall support and involvement throughout the digital transformation journey are really critical for success. Aligning that leadership team or that core team and securing their commitment mitigates risks that could really hinder the success of the project. If you think about it, this is a clear road to digital transformation failure if you don't secure that alignment or if that alignment is centered around one executive or one department, it really needs to be throughout the organization that everyone is clear that this project is a priority. We need to define specific, measurable, achievable, relevant, and time-bound, we call them SMART for short, objectives. These objectives should be aligned with your overall vision and strategy like we talked about in the beginning, 
but also provide that clear roadmap for what you're trying to achieve with this project. For example, if you are trying to create efficiencies in your manufacturing project, you're going to need to know, then map out the process to see the areas of efficiencies in which technology can support that objective. Now you wanna assemble a dedicated team that's responsible for overseeing and drive the digital transformation effort. This team should consist of cross-functional members with relevant expertise. While vendor partners are important, it is absolutely critical to have an internal team that is aligned with business objectives and understands the technology involved. As we always say, vendors have an agenda. It is their job to sell you software, just like system integrators. It is their job to implement software. Their job is dedicated to their business objectives, sales, implementation. Your business objectives need to be advocated for by your internal team. This is why it's so important to understand that you need to internalize this process. Another big consideration that we see with the core team is not understanding the resources needed from this internal team. This will be their job for maybe even the next couple of years. And you need to understand how you backfill those positions or how you keep the business from being disrupted by allocating these resources to something else. Knowing that there can be conflicting agendas, a lot of communication and limited internal resources, engaging a partner like we often do at Third Stage for that PMO or project management work can give you the opportunity to trust that that independent advisor is dedicated to your business goals and will be there throughout the process to ensure that you maximize the business value and the overall return on investment. This is absolutely a critical step that can often be overlooked. So what we wanna do is conduct a comprehensive assessment of your organization's existing digital capabilities infrastructure, processes, and culture. This assessment will help you understand the strengths and weaknesses and gaps needed to be addressed during the transformation. I can tell you that every single time we do a readiness assessment or a, a current state assessment for our clients, their executive level is always shocked at areas of resistance or misperceptions around what the technology will look like as far as value to the employees. It is critical to uncover these areas of opportunity in the phase zero planning. If you uncover them when you're in the middle of an implementation, then there's time, cost, and other areas of resistance that's going to derail your overall timeline. All right. So that's a preview of our coaching program related to pre-implementation planning. And uh, you can also get the entire coaching program. How can we do that, Kyler? If we want to see the rest of the steps uh, beyond the five that you covered there, what, how do we get to it? Absolutely. So it, it is a completely free program and I am, I am um, blessing you all to be beta testers here for us um, to let us know what your thoughts are in making sure that our content is relevant and valuable for our mission here, which is to create transparency and impact change in the digital transformation space. Um, so I highly encourage you to either scan the QR code on your screen or if you're listening on one of our audio platforms, um, the link is below. You can go to the landing page and fill out the information and you will receive 
um, a playlist to our full uh, coaching series through our phase zero planning, as well as our free download, which is your phase zero checklist. We give these to all of our clients, all of our core teams um, as kind of a guide to ensure that you're hitting all of those steps that we've seen as main failure points in our digital transformation experience, data and projects. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I highly encourage everyone to check it out. And I'll be curious to hear feedback from the audience as well. Once they have uh, had a chance to check it out, I'd be curious to hear if it was helpful and any other feedback you have. Um, so thank you for playing us that preview, Kyler, and for putting together and into putting together that offer for our audience here to uh, take part in that, that coaching program. And so we're just full of value here today. Not only are we getting the content from the podcast here today, but now you've got some follow-up value and homework you can do to to learn even more about the stuff that we talk about here every week on this show. So thank you for that. Well, good. Well, thank you, Kyler. And thank you to the audience here today for being here. Really, really appreciate your time. And uh, again, new episodes are released every Wednesday of this podcast. You can find those episodes at transformationgroundcontrol.com. And you can also see a list of past episodes that you can view uh, or listen to or both um, at transformationgroundcontrol.com. We look forward to seeing you next week on Transformation Ground Control. In the meantime, hope you have a great week and we will see you all soon. Take care.